Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C., and today my guest is Connie Schultz. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, as well as being a journalism professor at Kent State. She also happens to be married to Democratic Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown. How cool is that? Her book, The Daughters of Erie Town, drops on June 9th, and I'm really excited to talk to her. She's a brilliant mind. She's very kind and down-to-earth. She worked at the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper from 1993 to 2011, and she won the the, the 2005 Pulitzer for commentary on her pungent columns that provided a voice for the underdog and the underprivileged. I love that. She is a progressive woman. She's smart. We're going to have a lot to talk about. But of course, before we get started, and I'll be brief today, Start Me Up is an independent podcast and it's woman run. I'm the woman who runs it. If you like the show today, please consider becoming a monthly subscriber at patreon.com slash start me up. You can sign up for two dollars. Each uh, each show will be delivered to your email address. Then if you want to upgrade later, it's easy to do so. Just go to whatever tier. If you if you sign up for $5, you'll get at least two times a month. I do these solo podcasts. I've only done one so far, but I'm going to be doing two this month very soon. Two solo podcasts per month at least, and that might grow, where I either talk about stuff from my personal life or I you know, have commentary on what's going on in the news. The last one I did was about a man that I went out with. Actually, I mean, he was 24. It's hard to even call him a man. That seems so young. But anyway, I was 34. He was 24. And the whole gist of it was uh, it, it was not a love situation, but he had... Um, an extra large appendage, and it was kind of a funny story. So I do give, I did make sure if you want to go listen to it, it's, it's, it's Antonio. Just find the one that says Antonio. And I think I made it available for all the patrons, not just the $5 tier. If you're a patron of the show for any amount, you can hear it. And it's just kind of funny. And I do, it's a funny story and a funny memory for me, but there is a little bit of a correlation with the patriarchy and how the patriarchy affected me. So I told that story. And that's pretty much what I'm going to be doing for the most part, in these, um, I guess you can call them monologues, I, I do want to try to focus, or at least like, let's say I have an experience from my life um, that I find funny, but there's this little piece or a little nugget in there where I didn't feel sure of myself or I felt insecure or whatever it is where the patriarchy made me feel inferior. I, I want to try to kind of bring that out into the light because I look back on my experiences as a younger woman and I, I see that I did fall for the patriarchal bullshit a lot. So anyway, that would be $5 a month, but you can sign up for anything. You can do $10 or $25. Every dollar amount is appreciated. And then also, I always like to add that in the Patreon description of each show, I include my email address, which you can send a PayPal uh, donation to. Sometimes people feel more comfortable doing that instead of you know signing up for monthly things. But remember, when you sign up to become a patron, you do get each show delivered to your email box. However you support the show, I appreciate it, and I'm extremely grateful. Last thing I'll say is you can find Start Me Up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. I'm asking that you become a monthly, or I'm sorry, a subscriber on Apple Podcasts and give the show a positive review and a good rating. I just got another, a couple more good ratings, so thank you very much. And um, give me a review if you can, a good one. I'd appreciate it. And signing up to Apple Podcasts is free, so just become a subscriber. That's it. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Connie Schultz. Welcome, Connie. Thank you. I'm so glad to talk to you. I, you know, I, I really enjoy following your Twitter feed. Um, that's where I was introduced to you. And you're, I mean, this sounds corny, but 
you're really such a nice person <laughs> and it comes through. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it comes through and I feel it. And it, it's, it's like, you're like a mom type character and I don't mean my mom. You're only like 10 years older than me, but um, no, I understand. Yeah. I you feel have... like I sometimes I feel like the scolding mother, but <laughs> I guess I do bring my mom's sensibilities to things. Well, yeah, you have like this maternal kind of um, comforting way about you and I really appreciate it. And so I'm thank also you. extremely appreciative that, you know, you, you're on the show. And I know that you have a book coming out called The Daughters of Erie Town. So I do. I'd like to hear about it. Wow. And so what's it about? Um, It's about a working class family in a small town on the shore of Lake Erie in Ohio, a mythical town, but I grew up in a small town on the shore of of Lake Erie. So I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't have some similarities Mm -hmm. to that town. And it spans about five decades. Um, I guess I would, part of the narrative arc certainly is the role of various women um, and how their roles evolve over time and how they see themselves. And it starts in the 1950s. Hmm. And, um, but it's a, it's a lot more than that. One of the things I kept thinking as I was writing it, I've been working on this for almost a decade because my editor at Random House wanted me to write a novel about the working class. Mm-hmm. And she said that because their voices are so underrepresented in modern literature. Mm-hmm. But it took me some time to figure out what that would be and whether I could be that novelist. Right. And one of the things like, I care about, too, with the whole theme of it is that working class people really are... Oops, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's my phone. I apologize. Working class, um, I'm going down the basement because my dogs keep making mumbling. Some <laughs> well, my, my cat might interrupt, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, the work, working class people, I come from the working class, mm-hmm. and I was the first in my family to go to college. And what I know is that working class people are like everyone else, and, and including the wealthiest of people when it comes to growing up with dreams and mm-hmm. want, and loving people and wanting to make people who um, love them proud of what they're doing with their lives and all. The, the thing that changes so often is when the big problems come and there's no money to fix them. Mm-hmm. And that's when life can go off the rails. Yeah. Wow. Well, it sounds a little like there's a touch of feminism in their uh, strong women theme. You know, I don't see how we cannot look at it that way. I mean, women use whatever terms they want to use to describe themselves, right? Mm-hmm, right. But any woman who, uh, I mean, you and I both, we know so many women um, who are strong and smart and mm-hmm. often don't have the opportunities they, they should have had. Yeah. But that doesn't change how smart they are. Right. So certainly that, that is a theme in the book. Hmm. Wow, that's really cool. I, I want to read it. I know Charlotte Clymer got a copy and posted it, and I was like, ooh, <laughs> I want to read it too. <laughs> oh, that's, well, that's... Listen, if you send me your – you have my email address. Like, we were just corresponding. Send yes. me your address. I just got a few new arcs in, so I can send you one. Awesome. Like. Yay, thank you. Um, that You're would welcome. be awesome. So I also want to kind of um, – first of all, I want to say congratulations on that. That's, that's a big deal. And Thank I also you. want to say congratulations on willing, winning a Pulitzer Prize for your journalism. And you wrote something um, just after Super Tuesday called A Not-So-Super Tuesday. And you talked about how Warren had already been invisible. And you wrote, it's not because she's a woman, people tell me. It's not because she's that woman, people tell me. It's because of Hillary's loss that feels like a woman couldn't win, people tell me. You can tell me. And uh, you can tell me, and you can tell me, and you can tell me, but let me tell you, there's not a lie I haven't heard about a woman 
I'm sorry. I'm, there's not a lie about <laughs> my, my eyes are messing me up. There's not a lie. I haven't heard about a woman. What, what a woman can and cannot do at my age. Every act of sexism and misogyny is an encore production. Wow. That's amazing. And I just, I want you to expand on that a little bit because, uh, Warren's, I don't, I, I hate even saying loss, but Warren's loss touched us so deeply in so many different ways. And I just, I want you to expand on that. Well, you know, I was going to write about something different that day, and then I read Jessica Valenti's piece, Mm -hmm. which I quote in that column. Yes. And I'm 20 years older than Jessica. I love Jessica's work. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I have a few things to say about this, too. And I am at the age where I can't quite believe this is a conversation we're still having. Yeah. And my, I was feeling quite raw about it all. I still do. Yeah, me too. Um, When you look at the uh, turnout... And the votes yesterday even, you know, or wait, what are we, Wednesday? Yeah, Tuesday. Um, There are a lot of people now willing to vote for Joe Biden, who it appears were not willing to vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. And it's really hard for me not to see the sexism in that, and in some cases outright misogyny of it. And I'm really impatient at Mm -hmm. this point. And I also, um, I think that's the column I also talked about being asked about I was giving a speech in Columbus, and I was really unprepared for this question. I don't get caught off guard mm. by questions very often, but, uh, but the person who was interviewing me mentioned that I have granddaughters. We have seven grandchildren, and mm. three of them are girls, and they're very young right now. Um, but what I wanted them to know or remember about me, and I got very emotional about it, and I thought, if there's nothing else that's keeping me in this fight, it's them. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly on a bigger scale, it's our grandchildren, period. You know, that can sound so cliche, but it actually... It's true for us. Sharon and I yeah. talk about this quite a bit. As you know, my husband is um, U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. Yes. And um, it's not that we ever consider giving up or retiring. We don't. Mm-hmm. But when we are talking about what keeps us renewed, mm-hmm. you know, the, the energy comes back, even after very big blows like the election of Trump. Um, we talk about our grandchildren. Yeah. And who, who do we want to be for them? Because for the most part, what they're going to remember about us, they're going to be reading when we're long gone. hmm and we want the we want those to be really good stories, stories that they're going to be proud of, and and we hope they'll remember all these other things we do. They're not so little, big things. You know, we love them and we do a lot of stuff with them. But when you you know, we all know when we get older, what's the bigger narrative of the lives of the people who matter to us? Yeah. And we don't want them to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jess McIntosh did a tweet. She she works with she does a podcast with Zerlina Maxwell, and she you know, did this whole tweet thread and it was insanely accurate because she was saying how, um, you know, back in 2016, everybody was like, well, if it were just Warren, I would vote for Warren. And then look what happened. It's, and you know, I mean, obviously Hillary Clinton came to the table with so much baggage, but also so much experience. I mean, Elizabeth Warren had a lot of experience, but more people are familiar with Hillary and what she's accomplished and everything that she's done. And obviously she did go on to win the nomination. Um, but with Warren, it was like, I, I think there's so many levels and layers to why this happened. Obviously sexism plays the biggest part of it. I think part of it too, is that, um, because of Trump and the expectations that have been set up from him, I think people are so, filled with Trump fatigue, so sick and tired of being scared, so sick and tired of wondering what's going to happen next, that with somebody like Warren and even somebody like Bernie Sanders, um, who have progressive ideas, 
right now, I think people feel like they want to go with someone who they know and they trust and they understand, you know, like with Biden, they know him, they trust him and they understand him. Warren and uh, Bernie, who like I'm I view myself as a progressive, a pragmatic progressive, but a progressive. Um, I think so many people felt like I don't know them. I don't know their ideas are going to work. So I want to go with the ideas that I know are going to work. And that's pretty much what I took from like the bulk of people going for Biden. But the fact that Warren, um, you know, people said in 2016, if it were only Warren and then it wasn't, it was like, as I was watching Super Tuesday results coming in, I mean, I had, I've had such a mixed kind of up and down, but initially I literally had a stomach ache because I felt like, this is embarrassing. You know, she well, deserves made a couple references to fear. And I think that's a really important point to be making here. Yeah. I heard from a lot of my feminist friends, including a lot of, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn my phone off. Um, I've heard from a lot of my feminist friends that they were afraid a woman couldn't win this right. time. That we hear and that, to yeah. me, that is as much about how we feel about ourselves and our own strength. Mm-hmm. And and we were shaken by what happened with Hillary. Yeah. I don't know if you've watched the Hillary documentary. I'm watching Oh, it, you know, know it, it, it. My daughter, um, our thirty-two-year-old daughter, was texting me back and forth about because she was watching it, and it, it and it is a hard thing to watch, yeah. is it not? When you look at, uh, you know, we do talk about the baggage of Hillary, but I don't know how you how you be. I don't know how any pioneer doesn't have that baggage. Exactly, and right, she's when, a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and. and it, when you see what she went through mm-hmm. and how they still talk about her some and they want her to be quiet, they go mm-hmm. away, sit down, Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, and they never seem to understand when they say that, the people who are willing to say that, that they're talking to all of us mm-hmm. when they say that. Yeah. They think they're talking only to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. But any woman who has stood up for anything has experienced that moment in the room where somebody would prefer you just not be talking. Mm-hmm. So the fear has been so great, and the fear of Trump yeah. is so great. Not fear of Trump the man. Right. right. He, is, he is just <laughs> – there are so many things we could be saying about him as a human being. But it's what he's done to this country mm-hmm. and, and the unleashed potential he would have if he were reelected. Mm-hmm. Because he does not care to protect – I mean, look what's happening with the uh, um, coronavirus right now and how he's not responding. Mm-hmm. And how and now I was just reading just before you called that apparently some briefings are going to be um, in secret so reporters can't know what's being said and strategy is being mapped out. And this is exactly the opposite of what you need when people mm-hmm. are already terrified, and especially if you're trying to tap down panic. Mm-hmm. And there are reasons to be concerned. There are precautions we can take. And it, we, what we don't want is for people to feel that they're, they're doomed to die. Yeah. Right. Because then they won't even take the precautions mm-hmm. they can take or they'll act irrationally. Mm-hmm. And so this is what we're talking about when we're talking about fear of Trump. It's the yeah. fear of that presidency and what it could mean for the country if he's reelected. Yeah. And, and you know, what you said, I, I want to kind of touch on the fact that you said even feminists, because I'm right there with you. I've heard the same thing. Even feminists said, I don't know that a woman can win. And especially when it comes to Hillary Clinton. I mean, I'm not talking about Warren right now, but a little bit about Warren. Because, you know, I mean, I, I've i been a feminist my whole life, although it's not something I like announced until I became one online. But I've always viewed myself as a feminist. I've always stood up for people who I felt that were getting, you know, either discriminated against or got the shaft or something like that. When you look at somebody like Hillary Clinton, you know, she battled... Such, um, you know, in that documentary talks about how 
in the be- in the first um, episode how she back in when she was a young woman and she was coming up in law school and dealing with all the sexism and misogyny she just kept her head down she didn't say anything and she just pressed forward and then cut to you know 20 30 years later everybody everybody's expected to be emotional and 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 show emotion um when it comes to standing up for what you believe in and this was alien to her because she had like tr- trained herself to just stay quiet and keep her head down so this is new and awkward for her the rules changed and she's trying to go along with it but the bigger picture is that the you know republican party obviously couldn't stand her and decades and decades and decades of smears and what concerns me so much is that liberals even pick up on that and they you know just just as like because i'm a feminist and to me all feminists i mean it's just the dictionary definition it's the equal rights between men and women both social and political and legal so that's all it is. You do, if you want to shave your legs, shave your legs. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if you want it to be a feminist mm-hmm. statement, but it's like, who cares if you shave your legs or not? It's just let's let's all be equal and let's not make it about, you know, hairy armpits or something like that, which obviously, again, the Republicans like to do. But I see it bleeds over into liberal voters. And, you know, for instance, in the 2016 election, there was a huge part of the liberal community that just was calling her killery and saying, you know, they were picking up. And it's like, I know that people like Sarah Jessica Parker, um, who basically said, I believe in equality, but I don't consider myself a feminist. It's like, how can you say that? And it's not that I think, you know, I mean, a feminist to me, like I said, it's just the definition, the dictionary definition. So I think Republicans have this very strong I don't know. They, they have such an influence that it bleeds over into liberals. And I wish that we could find a way to stop that. And I don't know how. Hmm. I'm not even, you know, I guess I would say this on the misogyny on the left. And it does exist. Rebecca mm-hmm. Tracer did a wonderful book about this after the 2008 race called Big Girls Don't Cry. And I reviewed it for the Washington Post. And I was so struck by what she was saying at the time that, um, that we do have a problem on the left mm-hmm. with some, and I consider myself, I mean, I, I am a progressive. I'm not going to qualify in any way. I am a progressive. You mm-hmm. can't do what I do um, and grow up the way I did and not be a, a progressive in this country. And I don't feel any need or obligation to try to defend what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. And you know exactly why I'm saying that, because we've all been through this where yes. right now, especially we've got this whole, you can't possibly be a progressive if you're not supporting Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Sure I can. Right. Of course I can. Um, and these people are often decades younger than me mm-hmm. tell me this. And they're most frequently male. Look what's happening right now yeah. because Elizabeth Warren didn't endorse Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I mean, you don't see a lot of people, at least I haven't, um, going after her because she has yet to endorse Biden. But the hate that's being um, heaped on her by some on the left because she has been unwilling to endorse Sanders feels, uh, again, there's an encore performance to this for me. This is not the first time we've seen this. Uh Yeah. You know, what's funny is a friend of mine sent me an article from 2016. He sent it this morning and it says a 2016 article um, or I'm sorry, Harvard Law Review. And it's titled U.S. Millennial Men. Are they just as sexist as their dads? And basically... Yes. So um, this is specifically talking about, you know, an academia and how men in um, classes don't expect much from women. They expect more from men. And, you know, here it is a chilly environment for women. Um, It may not be going away anytime soon. So you're a journalist. 
and obviously you're a woman online. I mean, are you seeing this out in the world? Do you see that women are not, um, there's no, the expectation is lower for them in well, school? I, I can't answer it without also saying to you this, that uh, as I think you know, I'm a writer in residence at Kent State, my alma mater, yes. and I've been there for four years now. And I make such an effort with women, my female students, and in fact, I will call them into my office sometimes, I'll hold them after class, because I know how smart they are. Their writing is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But we also, uh, class participation matters in their grades, because we workshop one another's work. Mm -hmm. And I am struck by how often, by the end of the semester, I mean, they certainly do more, because most people will do more if you have somebody who believes in them, right? right. And how often they tell me it was the first time anybody had pulled them aside Hmm. to encourage them and make it specifically about their gender, that yeah. women should be heard as well. And that is not a criticism of my colleagues. I think for a lot of us, um, you know, we, we, we're trying so hard to be fair, but how do we define fair? I'm not being unfair to my male students mm-hmm. to encourage my female students to be equal participants. Yeah. And I was very shy in college at first. A lot of my students laugh when I tell them that, but it was true. So I understand what it feels like to be a female who's unsure of herself Mm -hmm. and is anybody going to care what I think? Well, what I want to help women get to in terms of how they frame it for themselves is it doesn't matter who's inviting you to speak. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who doesn't want you to speak. What matters is that you have something important to say and that, and more, and even more to the point, you have a right to say what's on your mind. Yeah. And that's what I've been encouraging. I mean, Facebook, as I, you and I were talking before we started recording, I've been writing public conversations over there for more than a decade. Hmm. And one of the things that so strikes me about it is how often women have either privately through texts or emails or publicly around the country. When I first meet them, they tell me they follow and sometimes participate. And they thank me for creating a space where women can speak their minds. Mm-hmm. I think they're giving me too much credit. <laughs> what has happened is that when we started doing it, many of the women came to appreciate the community we were building there, and they would tag me when trolls would show up or you know, the <laughs> usual misogyny or racism or homophobia would show up. And I would make it, you know, I would block them. Yeah. I would delete them, and sometimes I would announce that I was doing it, and here's why, mm-hmm. because we had a community worth protecting. What that has told me is how... I wish I wish we didn't feel we need permission. Yeah. But I have to but I have to acknowledge that many women do feel that way that yeah. they need permission just to be heard. Yeah. Yet. And that's one of the things we have to work on. So you mentioned you were shy when you started college. So, you know, your experience again, I mean, I'm not necessarily comparing it to Hillary, but I imagine that you had some of the same issues growing up in college finding yourself I mean, what was that like, and how did you? How have you overcome it? Um, I just ran into. I did a post last week. I don't think I put it on Twitter though. I put it on Facebook and on Instagram. I ran into a woman at an event who was a journalism professor when I was at Kent State in the seventies. And the reason she's so memorable to me, uh, Catherine Endress, but we all called her Kitty, Kitty mm-hmm. Endress, is I was so nervous. Uh, about talking to strangers. I was so scared. I mean, my the, the enrollment of Kent State was bigger than the population of my hometown. Wow. So I was just terrified all the time. And I was afraid I just, I wasn't going to be able to cut it. So I was, a t- of course, many of us do this sort of thing. For me, what I do is I try to be funny <laughs> when I don't know what I'm doing. And this was a news writing course. And she finally 
ordered me into her office, closed the door, and said to me, you can be the most popular girl in the class, or you can be one of the best journalists we'll ever graduate from Kent State. Which is it going to (laughs) be? And it really, right? I mean, it just, it turned my life around. Nobody had told me I could be one of the best at something that didn't involve being popular. And um, that really changed my life. So I was lucky to have that early. And, of course, once I started interviewing people and having my stories and, inf- and realizing people just talked to me, I looked really, you know, you, you were joking that I'm the mom on Twitter. <laughs> I've always looked harmless, which is really good for yeah. me as a journalist. <laughs> and people would tell me things, and, and including a lot of authority figures, because they weren't taking me seriously. They were wow. male. They thought, oh, she's asking all these questions. And then they'd see the stories. Right. Mm-hmm. They, they wouldn't accuse me of misquoting them. They just couldn't believe I actually quoted them. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, I'm going to be 52 in July. And so as oh, I July said, what? July 17th. I'm the 21st. So wow. see, we're even born in the same month. Yes. <laughs> years apart, of course, years apart. Well, just like a decade, but still. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, was, you know, I mean, I've always, my mom was single and she took care of business, you know, a single mom taking care of business. When I, I wrote a book called American Woman, The Pole Dance, and it's just about the importance of, of women voting and some personal stuff in there. But whatever. I told the story. It's like my mother, you know, when, when the toilet was clogged, um, she's the one who took care of it. I mean, okay, we live in apartment buildings and we could always call the custodian to come fix it. But, you know, she's, she would still do the sink herself. She would still do certain car repairs herself. She took care of business and I grew up watching that. Um, and it's so oh. weird to me because I, you know, as a Gen Xer saw, it was, it, I just find this so weird. Like the 1980s were very conservative, right? It was like the Reagan time. Yet it didn't feel conservative to me as a kid because the, the pop culture felt, even though like the fashions were kind of conservative because they totally covered you up, um, it, it felt all new and exciting and innovative. And then I saw women getting jobs on Wall Street and, and walking home in their tennis shoes. And, in my, you know, and then there, I never can remember her last name, but her name was Teresa something. And this woman was getting beaten up by her husband and the cops didn't do anything about it until finally, I think in front of them, he stepped on her neck. I think he broke her neck or he did something like that. And then do you remember her name? I can't remember her last name. I I remember the story. I can't remember. Yeah. Because of her, um, you know, we have that term domestic violence. So I would see, you know, all, and then there were movies that were coming out about the strength of women. And it just seemed to me that women were gaining power all over the place and that by now we would have, I would have seen at least two or three female presidents, um, more women in government. And then now we have Trump and Trump is setting us back. But, you know, and and I'm just kind of going off, you know, on a tangent here. But I want to say one thing that I think and I've said this before, and I'm just going to keep saying it. One thing that's benefited us is because of Trump, women have risen. And in 2012, I learned that the Equal Rights Amendment had not, you know, passed into the Constitution, which I didn't realize. I thought I figured we were equal. And I remember the Equal Rights Amendment and I wasn't like involved in any of it because I was a kid, but Mm -hmm. I remember it. Mm -hmm. And my mom was all involved and everything, but um, and talking about it, but I hadn't realized. And so, you know, we had the 35 states that passed and then it stalled and Phyllis Schlafly and the, the deadline was put on it. And then that expired. And 
it was pretty much like, okay, what are we going to do? So I became an advocate in 2012 and I worked really, really hard with a lot of other people. And it just, I just didn't even know if I was going to see anything happen. And then 2017, Nevada passed. And then in 2018, Illinois. And then finally in 2019 or no, this year, was it this year? Yeah, this yeah, year. Virginia. Uh, Virginia passed yeah. it. So obviously yeah. now we have to deal with this whole expired deadline crap, but we will. Right. And um, I think what I want to kind of bring this up to is it took somebody like Trump, and, and I, I don't want to put it all on him because activists were on the ground in Nevada for a very long time and Illinois yeah. and Virginia. They were doing the work. And so it, this wouldn't have happened without all of those people setting everything up and having it in place when Trump got in. But it's like as soon as he got in, boom, here comes Nevada. And then the next year, Illinois. And then, and then 2020, we've got, you know, Virginia. So there is something positive that's coming from it, but what do you think it's going to take for us to finally feel confident to get a woman in the White House? Well, that's that's a really big question. I, I, I think know. we look at the midterm elections, and we can feel heartened by the midterms, yeah. right? All these women were elected. Coretta Scott King, and I wish I could remember the exact quote, but the gist of it was this, that we're never going to not have to fight yeah. for civil rights. Right. It's... Because it, the battles will always be there. And for those of us who think there's an end game, right, that certain things <laughs> yeah, that 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 we're done, <laughs> you, the longer you live, you realize that's not the case because yeah. there will always be a new group mm-hmm. trying to oppress us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not as surprised about the pull of Trump in this way. I mean, I certainly didn't think he was going to get elected. But as I reflected on even my life, I've been a columnist now for 18 years. And there's, you talk to any woman who's paid to give her opinion on a regular basis, and she has her stories, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't matter your politics. Mm-hmm. It, 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 there's a certain percentage, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a certain percentage of specifically white males, mostly, who resent that we have the forum, mm-hmm. that we are ever allowed to have any influence. And the hate is profound. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it comes only from men, but it's, in my experience, it's been predominantly Yeah, men. me too. And one of the things I had to adjust to in the beginning, it felt overwhelming, the hate. Mm-hmm. I, I really wondered, did I want to keep doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, the, even after the Pulitzer, which certainly helped because I became nationally syndicated and I was reaching even a wider audience, which meant I was reaching more women and the men who love us, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I always look at it <laughs> because there are a lot of good men out there who support women. Yes. Um, it can feel exhausting at times, of course, but, uh, you know, look what my parents did for a living. My mom was a nurse's aide and my dad was a utility worker. The, I don't know their brand of tired. And I try <laughs> to remind myself of that as well. Do I think I'm going to live to see a female president? I don't know. I'm, you know, I won't give up hope of that. Mm-hmm. What I do know is that I have to keep in the fight for mm-hmm. as long as I am mentally able you know, I hope that's till the day I drop dead. And I'm also aware of, I, I'm 62, I'm the age of my mother when she died. Mm-hmm. And wow. every day is a gift. And how do yeah. I want to use this gift of life? What yeah. do I want to do with it? So it becomes, I think as we get older, talking to some of my friends who are older, I mean, I have a lot of young friends, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's really important <laughs> to have a wide range of friends um, in terms of ages and backgrounds and stuff. I think we become... There's always a danger of cynicism, which I think is intellectual laziness. Mm-hmm. And I don't Me tend too. to gravitate to people who become cynical. I don't want to be around that. But there is a no- we do come to terms with this, I think, that all that we wanted 
has not happened. Mm -hmm. But all that we want is righteous. Mm -hmm. And so we keep going. And I often am asked that question when I give speeches or if I'm just meeting with a group of women. And how do you keep going? How do you not give up? And I I always say, you know, even if you're not aware of this, you're answering the same question every morning. Is this the day Mm -hmm. that I keep fighting for whatever it is you believe in, right? All kinds of things you can believe in. Or is this the day I give up? And every time, because you're sitting in front of me, I know what your answer was. Feet on the ground, sisters. Mm -hmm. We kept moving. And some days, that's it. That's going to be enough, Kimberly. It's got to be enough. Because we're not going to see the progress we want every day. But it starts with us, right? And as long as we are always forward motion, that's, that's good news. And that that brings me back to Alice Paul, who wrote the Equal Rights Amendment. And she said that, you know, everybody who worked on or works on getting this passed um, is a piece of the mosaic. And so each one of us has a role to play, whether it's in the Equal Rights Amendment or just in women's rights or any kind of civil rights in general. So I do. I mean, I'm totally with you. And I feel like for me, it's always about tell me I can't and let me, you know, let me go because I'm just going to try so hard to prove that I can. Um, I so identify that one of my best friends once said to me, how do you get Connie to do something? <laughs> Tell her no. <laughs> As a male colleague at the plane dealer when I was still there. So it's nice, to, you know, not all women feel that way, right? right? They can really get beaten down. Mm-hmm. We're lucky that that's our personality. Frankly. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I've, I've always had a bit of a, a, a rebel in me. And so, you know, I mean, when I was in high school, I was in debate class and I had this woman, uh, the, my teacher was a woman and I know I entertained her. I had such a big mouth and every single time I went in front of everybody, you know, you'd see all the boys in the class rolling their eyes like, oh no, oh no, here she goes. And I loved it. And it wasn't that I, you know, I mean, I wish that I wasn't, I wish that I was a little bit more um, interested in school. I, I was never that interested. I mean, I was, I could get good grades when I applied myself. But, you know, I I unfortunately didn't have the benefit of going to the best schools because I was raised in Southern California. And um, I went to school in Maryland until I was eight. And then I went to school in Southern California, came back to Maryland briefly, and then actually had uh, one school year in Moscow because my father worked for ABC News. That was a really good school. That was Anglo-American school. But I just, I never really had the interest. I wish, like, looking back, I wish I did. But anyway, I like, I think part of it is because the teachers didn't really care very much. When I had teachers that cared, they made me care. They either, I was, I cared either because I was afraid of them or because I was inspired by them. But if teachers didn't care, then I didn't care. But I did love this class. And I, you know, I mean, I had this boyfriend who was, um, at the time he, he called himself, uh, now I don't even remember what they call, but it's basically like the goth, you know, um, the goth look. And he wrote this underground paper under an assumed name because he was so cool. And, um, you know, he was talking about, and it's so funny because I'm progressive and here he's talking about the establishment and he's talking about how, you know, poor people are, are just basically crapped on by the wealthy and all that. So I, and there was profanity in this piece and I asked my teacher if I could read it. And, and so she said, yes. And I just, again, I remember mostly it was the white boys in the class 
who just looked at me like, oh my God, there she goes again. And I took so much, I was so thrilled to have that spotlight. I was so thrilled to say, you have to listen to me now, even if it was just a stupid <laughs> debate class in high school. But I, I, I'm veering off the subject. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's that I, I... I don't think you're veering off. <laughs> well, I, I just feel like it's important for all of us, whether, you know, male, female, if you believe in equality, it's just like you said, show up every day and fight. And now what I kind of want to bring this to is it, it looks like Biden's going to be the nominee. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was um, just I just posted an article about Jim Clyburn suggesting an African-American woman as his vice presidential pick. And perhaps that's going to be Kamala Harris. Whoever it's going to be, if we get a woman, do you think that that's going to make a difference? Do you think I mean, I don't know if Joe Biden will run again in 2024. That's yet to be seen. Um, so let's just say he decides that he's not going to, he's already described himself as a bridge to the next generation. So I think it's likely or at least plausible that he would, you know, pick this woman and then she would go on to run for, uh, the president in 2020. So let's just say that's the case, whether it's Kamala Harris or, or some other capable, you know, or woman, Stacey Abrams, Stacey Ab- the one thing with Stacey Abrams that concerns me is she's only had house experience. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, state experience. Not that I don't think she's capable because she's like, Oh my God, she's such a powerhouse. She's so smart and incredible. But I wonder like, would it be better to have her just like get a little bit more experience and come to us and lead when she's just had, you know, y- a couple more years and, and experience with government. I don't know. I mean, I- I'd be happy with you anybody. Know, I feel- a little differently in this way. Um, I spent time with uh, Stacy a few months ago because um, she had asked me to interview her on stage at a library event in Toledo, Ohio. Wow! And I agreed to do it. And wow! And I uh, one of the things about her is, she, which is clear to everybody, she's so smart. Yes. She has a terrific sense of humor. She writes romance novels. Wow! Of everything else. I didn't know, Did that. You know that. No, I didn't. Yeah, that's and so cool. Sometimes you don't necessarily feel you're ready for the job, but the job is ready for you. Yeah. I think we we weren't having this conversation so much when Barack Obama was running for president, well, and he had not had the executive experience. Well, he did. He um, was a he was a senator, wasn't he? He's a senator. He was a, very briefly. Right. Briefly. Briefly was he a senator? Yeah. And that's still not executive. Um, power, right. It's not being in an executive position. I do think um, the times come to you mm-hmm. sometimes. So I don't share that reservation. I certainly lo- like Kamala Harris a lot. I do know her as well, of course, because she is in the Senate with my husband. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel fairly confident if she was picked, if she were picked, they'd still have a Democrat elected in California to that, replace right. her seat, which is also something to consider. I don't think there's any question it has to be a woman and a woman of color. Mm-hmm. And Normally, historically speaking, it, the vice presidential pick doesn't really move a lot of numbers, mm-hmm. but we're not in normal times. Exactly, yeah. And I think this could really telegraph something pretty important about Joe Biden's values and about the future of the country. And it's the most hopeful thing I can think of right now to have a woman in that slot and then to be elected vice president. Would I have liked it to have been a woman elected president first? Yes. Yes. But I'm not getting what I want. Yes. Um, And I think this could be incredibly inspiring. It could bring a lot of Sanders supporters Mm -hmm. um, over, which we need, right? We need them. And um, it could bring, who knows, who all that we're not even thinking about right now. I don't mean to be overly optimistic about it, but what a powerful statement about Mm -hmm. our values if this is the ticket. Well, Abrams, I think, would have, uh, 
I think that she might even have more, or or I I should say, more people might be drawn to her. I mean, I remember, you know, back when when Kamala was running, I, I there was a lot of people, at least online, and that's just a certain portion of the country. It's not everyone. I don't know that this certain yeah. portion of, you know, Twitter people are representative of the entire country. But, you know, I mean, I know that there were there were black women. In fact, I know a black woman um, who I've mentioned on the show so many times. I uh, she she works at the grocery store that I go to all the time. And we talk about politics every single time I go. And she's always been team Biden. She likes Warren and thought, you know, she would make a great president. But she's like, no, it's not the time Uh, we need. And this she said from like, you know, early on, she's like, we need the white men to, to fight this out. And then she, and so I asked her about Kamala and she's like, I don't like her. And I, I, I can't exactly remember what she said, but she said something like, um, she, she goes with the wind or something like that. I mean, and we didn't, well, you know, I mean, I, I think that's an unfair, I, I, I agree. I think a couple of things here. First of all, it's, we always have to be cautious about anecdotes, right? Because, um, because one person says it, or even 10 people say it doesn't necessarily mean everyone's feeling this, the majority are feeling this. And certainly Twitter is no indication of what voters overall are thinking. Um, I remember in 2018 when Sherrod was running for reelection in Ohio, we held regular focus groups with Trump voters mm-hmm. throughout the um, election season. And one of the things that struck me is every time when they were asked how many are on Twitter, zero. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> zero, you know. That's good and, to know. <laughs> and women, the other thing that was encouraging is women were starting to peel off from Trump by the elect, by election day over yeah. two issues, the separating families at the border mm-hmm. and health care. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty, you know, I, I, I always want us to be cautious about drawing big assumptions about how somebody would play out. We're always going to have the critics. People are going to attack whoever is the nominee and whoever is the vice presidential nominee. Um, if Kamala Harris were the one chosen, a lot of people would be getting to know her for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I totally you know. agree. I totally agree. But what was interesting to me, though, about what my, you know, my friend was talking about, I was hearing the same thing, and I hope I say his name right. Is it Wajahat Ali? I don't know if that's mm-hmm. how you say his name. Um, you know, you know I, it, I see it writing all the time. I, I, right. I haven't heard it. Yeah. So I'm just going to go with that. But um, shortly after she had that conversation with me, he basically posted that he's been talking to specifically women of color, people of color um, that echoed her sentiment. And then, you know, Jonathan Capehart, who writes for the Washington Post, has been talking about um, his aunt, who uh, he basically says she's saying the same thing. And then uh, a person who's on the show often, Stephanie, uh, who used to be my co-host, she's running for office in um, Oakland, California. And she was talking to basically, you know, middle-aged black women. And they were all, they were all kind of saying the same thing, at least about Biden, not necessarily about Kamala, but about Biden. Yeah. So I, well, I thought... keep in mind too, there's a difference in interviews and what people are thinking about in a primary season. Yeah. Compared to a That's very election. true. That is very true. Right. Yeah. And when we're talking about now we've got a nominee mm-hmm. and now we've got to pick the running mate because it's all hands on deck. We've got to defeat Donald Trump. I suspect even some of the people who were critical of, for example, Kamala Harris would have a different conversation yeah. with you now. I think, I think that's true. Everything's at stake. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. And it's just, I, you know, I was, I've been trying to, you know, as much as I can with my limited um, audience, guide people away from fear 
Um, I, I, I feel like this election, though, it's so hard because not only are we dealing with, the, you know, as um, John, the comedian John Mulaney referred to Trump as the horse in the hospital and he's running loose and we don't know where he is and what he's doing and he's going crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, we also have to deal with the Russians and whatever they're doing, which has obviously become more sophisticated since 2016. And then we're dealing with the whole, I mean, I like to call them Trump co. I mean, there's, you know, whether it's Brad Parscale or Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon specifically said, we don't care about the Democrats. We're focusing on the press and we're going to flood the zone with shit. So we've got all these things working against us and, and people are reacting emotionally to what they see and they're not really thinking about it. It's like, so all this stuff is coming into play and I think people are just getting so afraid. And I, it, it, it concerns me because people say, you know, I mean, I've seen both sides of Bernie and Biden. They're like, Biden's not going to win. Biden can't win. Bernie can't win. I mean, both, you know, both sides are screaming that neither can win, yet I think both could win. It, whoever the nominee would be, I think the Democratic nominee, no matter who, could win. And they're going to win if we don't allow our fears to get in the way and we just go vote for them. <laughs> you know, it's like really simple. <laughs> I, I think that um, primaries are meant to be like this, particularly yeah. Democratic primary. We're always going to bicker. <laughs> yes. We're going to have all these, you know, grand statements of conclusions and this will never happen and I am gone <laughs> forever. And then we all coalesce, or most of us, around the candidate because so much is at stake. Yeah. So I'm a little more optimistic about how the general election can go, but I understand it's going to be messy right through the convention, I suspect. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about that, the, the general election. Okay, let's just assume that it's going to be Biden versus Trump. Do you mm -hmm. think now, obviously, we're in a different uh, political climate than when we were, we were in 2016. We don't have a woman running and, you know, call out what you want, fair, unfair. We we don't have a woman that's going to be beaten up because she's a woman. Um, we I think a lot of people thought that Donald Trump would kind of pivot into what you think a president should look like. And, be, and how he should behave or she should behave. Oh, you thought he was going to do that? Well, I think a lot of people thought, not that they, <laughs> that they thought that he, I don't think anyone expected what he's done. Like, I don't know that anybody could yeah, have yeah. predicted. Yeah, we, we did think he would riot. I mean, you, you wanted to believe that he would at least understand the gravitas. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think he would he be like Reagan. Yeah, I didn't think he would be like Reagan or anything, but I thought he would understand how to play the part. Like perhaps, you know, and he, he could have been actually more damaging because if he was quiet about everything he did and we didn't know, um, you know, he'd probably go on to get reelected. But he put all his crap out in the open and, and, and mm -hmm. we've seen it. But, you know, I mean, I certainly didn't think that he was going to be some great president. But I mean, from day one, he's talking about the crowd sizes and he's behaving like a child. And I, you know, I kind of figured that he would play the part, even if it was just to keep everybody confused and, you know, unaware of what he was doing behind the scenes. But he put it all out in the open. So I think that this election, we know who he is. And I we also... know who he is. Yeah. I mean, we, a lot of us felt we knew who he was from what he... I mean, when you watch the Hillary documentary on Hulu, hearing his words again about grabbing a woman yeah. uh, and the language he used, and it's not censored, mm -hmm. it's not bleeped out, is really stark. And you realize in hearing it how often we were not hearing the full language of it because so many journalists and particularly editors were deciding, no, no, we have to protect the public from this language. 
uh, when really we, we shouldn't have. Yeah. I, I understand it was really crude and, a, and, and menacing, and mm-hmm. but that's who he is, exactly. and that's how yeah. he should have been quoted. Well, and I mean, he brought all those women who accused Bill Clinton of rape to one of the uh, debates. Right. I, that, yeah. oh my God, that made me so angry. So, I mean, I certainly didn't expect him to pivot to some president, but I just, I did think he'd play act. And I think, mm. you know, but he didn't. And so, you know, I think that um, as far as, you know, we know who he is and we also know who Biden is. There's going to be, you know, everywhere, all we're going to hear is Hunter Biden and Anita Hill and, you know, the gaffes that he's made. And they're going to try to peg him as a racist and they're going to do all this stuff. But I, I mean, it's my opinion and I want to know yours. I just have this feeling. I mean, I don't I always say don't get happy. Don't, you know, go vote, do everything you need to do to make sure he doesn't win. But I feel like at least with voters taking out the Russian, um, God only knows what they're going to do, but um, take that out. I think with voters, we've pri- we've pretty much got it locked because we know who Joe is. It's good versus evil. That's how I view this. Well, I would caution against anyone thinking this is a done deal, right? Well, yeah. No, um, and I, I just mean with voters, uh, I think voters, we've got it, but there's no guarantee. So I don't, I don't want to say lockdown, like, don't worry about it. We've got this, but I think we, I think we have, you know, judging from the 20, all the elections we've had specifically the midterm elections, uh, and these, you know, latest, uh, primaries, we've had a huge turnout and, and that looks very promising. It does look promising. Um, I think what we're going to be wanting to see here is just Maintaining as stark a contrast as possible mm-hmm. to Donald Trump throughout the the general election, and that would mean in, I'm not convinced he will actually debate. Yeah, I know. Debate. I'm not sure of that at all. Um, it's really important not to let him um, not to take the bait when he tries yeah. to bring you down to his behavior. I don't yeah. have any question that that whoever's the nominee would not succumb to that. Mm-hmm. But I really do think more than ever, this is going to be a, an election of contrast, yeah. a campaign of contrast. And it's really important because temperament, as we have now discovered, for those who weren't sure of it, temperament really matters. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, yes, it does. My, my boyfriend, I don't know if you know who he is. His name is Bob Seska, but he writes for Salon. Yeah. And he, uh, he seems to think that Trump will welcome a debate because he loves to be the center of attention. And I mean, obviously he didn't debate anybody who was primarying him but uh you know no and that's expected but i think right. that um well i don't know Let, well let's see. yeah it's hard i, I don't he know has every reason not to because right. he's not informed and he does not have a natural he does not have an intellectual curiosity he'd have to be there he would have to exhibit discipline he has yet to display yeah to be ready for that debate Right, because but then I he did it with Hillary. The Democratic nominee is he—he—he he, he will be prepared. But I mean, he debated well. with Hillary, and like I don't think there could be anybody better than Hillary. You know, she's like the mas- uh, She's like a master at debate, and he—he he did it with her. You know, he went toe to toe with her, and his cult uh, bought it. Like, like oh, he won. You know, each side think the uh, you know each side thinks they win in any debate. He's going to always have that thirty percent. Yeah. We're going to love them no matter what. Right. But we know from polling and from all the stories we've been reading, there are people who have peeled off, particularly women. Yeah. He does not have the base he had four years ago. Yeah. And no, we'll he see doesn't. how that plays out. <sighs> well, I'm nervous, but I, I, I try to be hopeful. 
Um, but I'm still nervous. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I can see that the writing seems to be on the wall. The Democrats are paying attention. And, you know, maybe not every single person, but enough and enough to at least win us the House in 2018. And, you know, we've seen a big growth of diversity in Congress, and I believe that's going to keep going. But, um, you know, it's it's scary because this is it. It's all, it I mean, there's it's the mantra has to be turn out, turn out, mm-hmm. turn out. Yeah, we have got to the numbers have to be huge overwhelm them right bigger, Flood. you know make it bigger than it's been and so even attempts to oppress the vote even attempts to interfere with the vote uh will not survive the mere numbers yeah that show up and so when you know, like all your listeners if, if there's they're trying to figure out what do we do next how do we how do i make a difference in this whole scheme of things I would want you to find five people who have not been particularly paying attention Mm -hmm. or who are not convinced yet their vote matters and just, you know, virtually adopt them from here on in, help them get more educated on it without being patronizing, of course. You know, make sure they vote, help them do that, help them get to the polls if they want to do it in person. But make that your cause. Think mm-hmm. think of the difference we could make if we were all willing to do that. And yeah. particularly with young people, getting more young people involved. We need them. I always tell my students, the reason they don't care what you think is you don't make them have to. Right. If they thought you were going to vote in large numbers, they'd have to be addressing these issues that matter so much to you. So true. So true. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch on was I saw that interview on Chris Hayes with you and Sherrod, your husband. And so he was considering a run for president and d- decided against it. But this decision was between the two of you. And I, yeah. I just kind of want to know, I thought that was a great interview. And I, I just want to hear a little bit more about why he decided well, not to run. I, you know, one of the things we thought increasingly as Sherrod was touring, we had a wonderful time doing the Dignity of Work tour for two months and going to the primary states. But the more we were out there, the more two things became so clear. First of all, Sherrod loves being a senator. And mm-hmm. it, I'll never forget his face the day we sat with our team and said, you know, he was talking about all these things he wanted to do in the Senate um, throughout last year. And I looked at him and I said, honey, you're, you're not going to be that senator mm-hmm. if you run for president. And they all started nodding their heads. And he looked quite stunned by that. Hmm. Um, he really loves being a senator. But the other thing is, the, the, lo- the longer we were thinking about it, the more we thought, this is the year we should pick a woman. Hmm. This is the year. We, we really thought for the longest time that the nominee was going to be one of the female candidates. Yeah. And, that that, and that that was how it should be. So uh, we don't have any regrets. Right. Um, he doesn't, he, you know, he didn't want to run. And yeah. I, I respect his decision. I, of course, am happier that we're not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really, I mean, if he was going to run, I was all in. There's, right. Uh, the way we looked at it is our, question, our conversations at the end were, how do we best serve the country? Yeah. Each of us. And we feel like what we're doing now is how we can do that. Wow. You're, you're patriots. I love, I love him. I love you. You know what I also really enjoy is... Um, when you tweet and you pick, you know, put up pictures of your dogs looking out the windows for when he comes home or something like that. It's just, <laughs> it's really wonderful. You know, I mean, it, it really is because we're all just kind of in our little worlds online and, you know, I'm on all day. Like so many people, this is, you know, I, I do podcasting for a living. I, I write on my Patreon page for a living. And so I'm like immersed wow. in it. And 
so when I see, and I, and I don't really, I, I'm not just complimenting you to compliment you. I sincerely mean this. Like when I see people like you who are just bringing your real life in and kind of making things feel regular and normal, it really makes a difference. And it makes, it makes somebody like me while I'm in, you know, my blood is boiling because um, somebody said <laughs> something that pissed me off or whatever it is. It's tweets like that. Knowing that Sherrod wow. is in Ohio and he's working for the people and you are, are, your voice is so strong and so important, it makes me feel comforted. That means a lot to me. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I, part of it is I always try to be transparent about my life because I'm in journalism, but I'm married to a senator, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I also want to encourage people. I hope when they see some of these posts from our home life, uh, from our personal life, that, that it reminds them that they, they should have this too. Yes. They got to take care of it. We all have to take care of ourselves. And draw close the people who love us and whom we love, because that's how we stay strong. And I'll leave it with this. And you've heard this, I'm sure, this analogy before. Singers know to do this, like choirs and musicians um, and, and orchestras and stuff. But on the very long notes, it's impossible, humanly impossible, to hold the note the entire time. Yeah. And so there's a concept of staggered breathing. Mm-hmm. And so you stop for a moment and someone else sings mm-hmm. so that you can catch your breath. And they hold the note for you. And yeah. I love that analogy. That it's so important that we still take care of ourselves. Yeah. And when you feel tired, when you feel worn out, take that break. We'll hold the note for you until yes. you come back. And to me, that is crucial advice when you think of a life of activism. Wow, absolutely. I'm 100%. And yes, you do give me that little breath when I see those adorable dogs. I mean, there was this one when they were just looking out the window waiting for him to come home. And it like waiting for him. literally just warmed <laughs> the cockles of my heart. I was like, oh, my God, Aww. the video. You know, part of what gets me through this whole era are, are the animals that we see online. Oh, it's yes. like it helps oh, yeah. so much. <laughs> so I'm just grateful. Now, before we go, when is your book coming out? Thank you for asking. The Daughters of Erie Town comes out on June 9th. Cool. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link um, to the Amazon page in the Patreon description so everybody can find it and you can pre-order it there. And then Thank what? You. And you are, are you just Connie Schultz at Connie, Sh- Connie Schultz? I am at Connie Schultz, yep. Perfect. That's so me. it's all going to be in the description. Thank you so Thank much you. for being on this show. I love you. I admire you. You inspire. Oh, You're a wonderful woman. And thank you for being you. <laughs> well, thanks for all that you're doing. My gosh, look how hard you're working. You give me hope. Aww. So thanks a lot for this. Thank you so much, Connie. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I just, it's funny because um, somebody gave the, a review to start me up about how I fangirl. <laughs> I totally fangirl with Connie Schultz because as everything I said was true, um, she is amazing. I love her and Sherrod together. I love that they respect each other. I love that they are a progressive couple and that they are working to help the country. And, you know, I do draw inspiration from it because um, my boyfriend, Bob Suska, is also, I mean, he's not a senator, but he writes for Salon and he has a podcast and both of us have dedicated our life really to um, whether it's you know, informing people. Um, obviously, we're throwing our opinions out there, and I like to throw mine out a lot. But I do really try to, you know, I, I recognize that even though my Twitter following isn't enormous, I mean, I'm I'm at around forty thousand right now. It's a good size, and I have some influence with people, and um, I take that seriously. You know, I mean, I feel like 
even though I know I piss people off and some lady today basically told me that and, and this is a woman that I know personally because I've met her in person and we've had lunch together and we've worked on certain issues together. Um, people, She said to me, people like you are why I'm leaving the Democratic Party. You can guess who she's voting for. But um, the reason why she said that is because I, I had been on Twitter and endlessly, endlessly I'm accused of killing people, murdering people, because I'm not, my first choice isn't Bernie Sanders, or I'm not going to be voting for, for supporting. At this point, he may not be in the race um, in April when, I'm, when it's my turn to vote. But it's just, you know, whether it's Russian troll or actual voter, they were actual voters because some of these people had blue checks, so they've been verified. They're real people. And they were accusing me of either voting with my vagina or not being a real progressive because when, when Elizabeth Warren dropped out, I went to Biden. So then, uh, according to them, um, I wasn't a real progressive. And basically, everybody's, everybody's sister is dying from insulin. And I don't want to make light of that because I wrote a, uh, an article yesterday in my Patreon page. And I have a girlfriend who, and I've known her for quite some time, she has this condition called dystonia. And I guess it's related to Parkinson's. And it's fucking awful. You know, she is, um, every once in a while, like, It'll happen where her, like every muscle in her body will spasm and it can happen for months at a time and it's uncomfortable. It hurts her and she can't do anything about it. And I'm talking like it's her arm, it's her finger, it's her leg, it's her, it's her uh, cheek, it's everything. It's kind of like spasming and it makes her jerk around and it's fucking awful and she can't drive, she can't have a normal job and she's on Medicare. And so, you know, when people come at me and say, oh, my my relative who's on insulin is going to die because you're voting for Joe Biden. Oh, my God, it pisses me off so much. It's like, well, I have a friend who is on Medicare and she is a progressive and she's voting for Biden. And the reason she's voting for him is because she feels like she loves Bernie's ideas, just like me. She loves Bernie's ideas, but she doesn't trust that he's going to be able to get done what he's saying that he can get done. And she fears that if there were some kind of overhaul of the system that happened all at once, that somehow she might get lost in the shuffle. So she's going to go for what she feels like is safe for her. You know, she's on disability and on Medicare and she's going for Biden. But yet I'm accused of murdering people and killing people because I'm for Biden. And it's just fucking ridiculous. I don't even remember why I started going off on this tangent other than to say that, um, you know, oh, I know. It's just that Connie inspires me. I do try to be fair. Every once in a while, I lose it because I'm just, you know, bombarded by trolls or whatever it is. And again, it's not just, you know, I mean, there's definitely Russian trolls out there that are pushing some bullshit narrative, but then real voters who are emotionally charged and emotionally attached to their candidate are getting worked up by this and allowing it to become their narrative. And God, we need to stop doing that. I, you know, I really made an effort with Elizabeth Warren. I didn't, I didn't want to love her and I wound up loving her. Um, I didn't want to love her though, because it was, it was very difficult to see her um, get just pummeled in, in on Super Tuesday. She didn't deserve that. She deserved more. But it is what it is, and the country is at a place where I can't control everything. So I've just got to go with it. And, you know, seeing this woman who I know, 
tell me that I'm the reason she's leaving the Democratic Party, all I can say is, well, I'm sorry that you're being so stupid and immature because it's really stupid and immature. You know, she says, I went out and I did this for the Democratic Party and I, I worked on getting people, you know, down ticket. And it's like, that's great. But what? So I make some pissy comment on Facebook that I'm being accused of murdering people. And it, but like if we vote for Trump, that's going to be OK. That offended her so much that she's leaving the Democratic Party. You know what I have to say to her? Fuck you. Then, then what you're going to do by punishing the Democrats is punishing yourself and letting the Supreme Court go to Trump. You know, whatever. If that's the way you feel, then go with your self-righteous, you know, bullshit and see what happens when Trump is president. And how great will you feel then? Sorry, I just had a rant and I didn't even mean to bring that up, but it was something that just happened this morning. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say that I was overly offended. I'm used to this. I'm used to being online and having people scream at me and tell me how stupid I am and how selfish I am and how much white privilege I have, which I do. I totally have white privilege. And, you know, it's, I just see it differently than they do. I feel like Biden has a more, not that I wanted him. Anybody who listens to this knows Biden was not my choice, but here we are. We're in a situation where I do think he has a pass path. And, you know, I want to just say that Biden at this point in time, we know who he is. Now we know the good, we know the bad. We know the Anita Hill. We know all the shit that he said in the past. It's not going to look good now. You know, we know all about Hunter Biden, blah, blah, blah. Nobody fucking cares. Right now it's between Donald Trump and good. So Joe Biden is a good guy. And you know what? Anita Hill said she would vote for him. Anita Hill. Not only that, some of the shit that he said in the past, it's stupid. He wouldn't say it. In, he's evolved. He's figured it out now. He gets it. And it's not that he gets it, that he's secretly, you know, sexist or racist. The guy is almost 80 years old. He served under Obama for eight years. He was Obama's wingman. There was this um, wonderful post by a black woman and basically, you know, I'm just not going to read the whole thing, but the gist of it was why do black people trust Joe Biden and why do they not give a shit about things that he said all those years ago? It's because he was, he played second fiddle to a younger, smarter black man. And he did so with grace and he was always so appreciative and always so grateful to be part of Obama's team. And he proved to the black community that he's an ally. And she said something like, you know, name other, one other, you know, uh, 40 plus year establishment white dude who's done anything like that. And so it's like, when I read that, I thought, wow, you know, whatever I think of Joe Biden and whatever I think of, you know, the fact that I really think Elizabeth Warren should have been the nominee and you may think somebody different, but still the same idea. I'm going to listen to black people. Black people have decided where this election is going. South Carolina, they're like, all right, we're not fucking around anymore. We're getting Joe Biden in there and that's it. And then everybody, you know, it seems like, you know, I think Alabama, uh, 70% of the black community voted for Joe Biden. And then last night, as Steve Kornacki was breaking down all of the, uh, you know, different races and all of that, again, we just saw in these individual states where the black vote was huge for for Joe Biden. Yes, the youth vote went to Bernie, but that was it. That's all he got. And when you're just looking at this in an analytical sense, we need as many young people as we can get to vote. But we also need everyone else. So Joe Biden makes the most sense. And I'll say this, I'll end with this. Obama is totally there. 
he is there and he's going to make sure, you know, he knows how to win an election, right? He knows he's done it twice and he understands the the need for the youth vote. And while I know Obama's not going to be running Joe Biden's campaign, obviously he's going to play a huge role. And I'm sure they're going to put in all the same advisors that he had or, or really good ones that are new, whatever it is. And, you know, Obama's going to have his say. And he's going to say, you need to do this and you need to do that. And everybody's just going to listen because he knows how to win elections. So as much as, you know, this election, this primary season started off with this huge group of people and we all had our opinions of each and every one of them. And I even wrote an article saying that I didn't think Joe Biden was going to even make it. Okay, I was wrong. And again, we are where we are and we're in a situation where I think that the black community is going to stand behind Joe Biden so fiercely and so strong and the rest of us are following and we just we're just going to listen to what they have to say and go yes we get it and we're with you and i know that there's a lot of people out there who are pissed off that bernie isn't going to win and you know you can argue with me and go there's still time he has no path I'm not saying that to be condescending. I'm just not. He has no path. Look, I wanted Elizabeth Warren and it was really upsetting for me, but I got over it. So if you don't, if Bernie isn't the nominee, which I'm going to go ahead and guess that he's not going to be the nominee, have your little grieving, you know, feel bad. I felt bad. I cried when Elizabeth, I cried when Bernie didn't make it in 2016. And then I cried when Elizabeth Warren lost and, and, you know, suspended her campaign. So have your time. But realize this isn't about fucking you. This is about the country. This is about the Supreme Court, fair elections. We're not going to have a fair. I mean, this election, they're going to cheat, but we have a shot. I guarantee you, if Trump gets a second term, there's no shot. No fair elections. It's going to be a completely right wing Supreme Court. They're probably going to add more people to the Supreme Court. It will be more right wingers. It'll be done. This country will be fucking toast. We have hope right now. So do as Connie said, pick five people and help them to be educated. Don't condescend to them. Don't patronize them. Make them, you know, understand what's at stake and, and the most pragmatic approach. And right now, if Biden is the one, he's the one. That's who we have to get behind. I'm so spirited, aren't I? (laughs) So Bernie said that uh, he's going to stay in the race and he's going to debate Joe. I don't know if that's going to help him or not, but he's got a lot of delegates and Bernie's got some pull. So just like in 2016, he right now has the power to push the Democratic Party to the left. He did it in 2016. So he's, he can do it again. I hope that at this point, he doesn't stay as long as he did the last time. And I hope it's a smoother transition. And I hope that he does what he said he was going to do. If he, indeed, you know, it comes to a point where... Uh, it's really no path for him that he endorses Joe and says to all of his supporters, we need, you know, um, Trump. I haven't been saying Trump is an existential threat for nothing. He's an existential threat. And so the party needs to get behind Joe Biden. But you know what? He can also say, look, we need to support progressive candidates moving forward. We need to get them into the Senate and to the House and to, you know, all the way down. So he could be a unifier if he wants to. I hope that he chooses to do that. I'm all worked up, as you can tell. Talking to Connie kind of got me worked up because she's, like I said, inspiring. But I feel like there's just every every moment there's so much shit going on. And I'm like, I'm going crazy. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking now. Um, On Monday, I'm going to be talking to 
I hope I say his name right. I, it's Jared. I'm just going to say Jared Sexton. That's his name. He was on the show before and he's really cool. He's, I think, 31 years old. He is so smart. I just, he, I am in awe of his intelligence. So I'm going to be talking to him and then I'm going to be talking to a woman and I don't have her last name in front of me, but I know she was a Warren supporter and she's a disabled activist. Her name is Maysoon. Um, and we're going to talk on Wednesday and at some point I will be doing my patrons only, whatever it is I'm going to do. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about, I might do another relationship with relationship one. So we'll see. But anyway, can't wait to talk to Jared on Monday and don't forget, you can always find me on Twitter, author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Um, you can find me on Amazon. I have four books out. Peyton's Choice. That's about teen romance and teen abortion. Also, American Woman, The Pole Dance, Women in Voting, The Virgin Diaries, and Ain't No Sunshine, Men Reveal the Pain of Heartbreak. I got to say, thank you to everybody who's buying Peyton's Choice. I, I do notice that the sales have gone up, so I appreciate it. And thank you. And that's it. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.